Uh, good evening, everyone, and thank you, Ho, and everyone else. Tonight, uh, we are picking up again on our series, More Than a Comma, which is uh, attempting to journey with Jesus through Luke's gospel. And during the, the past few weeks, there's been a question on various people's lips, a, a question which is one of the most important that we can ever ask or answer. Who is Jesus? Or who is this in reference to Jesus? His closest friends have asked it after he miraculously calmed a major and life-threatening storm. His enemies and his critics have asked, us, asked it after they became aware that his disciples were mobilized on mission. And this evening we actually hear Jesus ask it. Now not who am I as if he didn't know, wasn't sure, was going through some kind of midlife identity crisis. No, Jesus asks this question about himself, but he directs it to his disciples on a couple of levels. If you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn with me to Luke 9, it's page 1039 in those red pew Bibles. And we're going to start reading from where we left off two weeks ago. And so can I uh, invite you to stand with me for the public reading of God's word. Luke chapter 9, and we're going to begin at verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah, or the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your very self? If any of you are ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of heaven. Take a seat. Question. How is your personal and private prayer life at the moment? Now that might seem like a question from left field, given my introduction about questions. But I don't want us to miss or rush past the detail of verse 18. Now I know I've drawn attention to this before and I don't apologize for doing it again. But one of the striking features of Jesus' life was his commitment to personal prayer. Praying by himself. He often did it according to the Gospels and he definitely taught it. When you pray, go into your room 
shut the door and pray to your Father. Personal and private prayer space and time were part of his rhythm of life. It appears to have been a holy habit. And as we think about our calling as 21st century disciples to walk as Christ walked, then the example of Jesus needs to be embraced. And so let me ask you that question again. How is your personal and private prayer life at the moment? How has it been this week? In terms of raw time and practice, how's it been? I don't ask that to send anyone on a guilt trip because the reality is that most of us feel guilty about our prayer lives at the best or the worst of times. But I only ask it to encourage us to think again about its place and about its priority. Here in Luke 9, we find Jesus, the Son of God, the anointed one, the most powerful person who ever walked the face of the earth. And what is he doing? He's praying in private. And if he needed to do that, if this was a discipline he realized was essential, then how much more do we? Throughout Luke's gospel, we read of Jesus engaging in personal prayer, particularly just before or during major events in his life. So, for example, Luke 3, 21, we find Jesus praying privately as he's baptized. Luke 6, 12, we discover Jesus taking himself off for a whole night to pray. Why? Just before he appoints the 12 disciples. Here, in Luke 9, significant moments are imminent. Key questions are being asked. Key questions are being answered And Jesus is preparing to share something with his disciples that's going to turn their world upside down. He's about to predict his own death. And so he realizes, I need to pray. And again, for us, I don't know what you're going through at the moment. I don't know what lies ahead in the next few days, weeks, months. But for us, the need to pray about the issues we face and the decisions that we've got to make, the challenges that we confront, it's evident. Because you see, trying to live in our own strength, drawn from our own resources, it's never clever, it's never wise. But saturating our choices and our dilemmas and our options daily in prayer is an essential life-altering possibility, opportunity and gift. So before we rush past the first seven words of Luke 9, 18, let's just pause and recognize that Jesus modeled for us the need for personal and private prayer. Now it does say his disciples were with him. And so having prayed... Jesus then takes the opportunity to ask them this key question. So who do the crowd say I am? What is the word on the street regarding me? As you move around, what are you hearing? You see, it seems that in some way Jesus wanted his disciples to process and consider what the world or society at large or the surrounding culture thought about him. And I actually think there's a real lesson here for us that it is worth exploring and discovering and listening to what those around us say about Jesus. What is their perspective? What is their impression? What is their understanding? What is their opinion? What do our Muslim neighbors 
say about Jesus? What do those who call at our doors say about Jesus? Here's what some relatively well-known people have said about Jesus. Jesus was the first socialist. The first to seek a better life for mankind, said Mikhail Gorbachev. Prince Philip said this. He might be described as an underprivileged working class victim of political and religious persecution. Ernest Renan, French philosopher, writer, Jesus was the greatest religious genius that ever lived. Here's what Elton John said recently about Jesus. Some people might find this offensive, but I'm just trying to illustrate the variety of perspectives that exist in our world. I think Jesus was a compassionate, super intelligent gay man who understood human problems. In Friday's edition of the I newspaper, the quote of the day was this There was only one Christian, and he died. On the cross. Who do the crowds today say Jesus is? Who does the person sitting next to you in work or in university think about Jesus or say he is? You see, I reckon we need to know. I think it's important to know because having listened and having understood what those around us like Elton John think, then surely we are better placed to share and explain what we believe from God's word and from personal experience regarding who Jesus really is. Jesus asks his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And it turns out there are three main schools of thought. In that day, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. And this appears to be popular opinion, because if you have your Bible open at chapter 9, if you look at verses 7 and 8, whenever Herod asked the same question, who is this, he got the exact same answers. John, Elijah, one of the prophets. Now whatever we make of those responses or whatever various people thought, the one thing that we can be certain about is that everyone realized Jesus was different. He, he wasn't normal as we understand normal. There was something special. There was something outstanding and unique and disturbing about Jesus that prompted people to think, would well, you know something? He is someone who's come back from the dead. He's different. Now, none of the above were right, but at least let's grant them that they had sensed and accepted that he was distinct. And at this point, having heard the major schools of thought, Jesus then gets personal. The questioning becomes a little more direct. But what about you, says Jesus? Who do you say I am? You see, what we discover or understand about what others think about Jesus is interesting, it is enlightening, but how we ourselves answer this question will define us. It will define us. And it will determine the course of our life. Here, now, 
and forever. And of all the disciples, it's hardly a shock to read that Peter was the first to answer, or Peter was the only one to answer. And according to Luke, and I know the other gospel writers record different answers, but according to Luke, Peter's answer was this, the Christ of God, or God's Messiah. And so for a start, Jesus, you're not someone else. You're not someone back from the dead. You are you. And you are the anointed one of God. That's what this means. Not an anointed, the anointed. And wrapped up in that title and that idea or that phrase is the truth that according to Peter, Jesus is the deliverer. He's the one that people have been looking for and waiting for for so long. But what that meant exactly, or how Jesus was going to deliver the people of God, well, that detail was unknown up to this point. It was about to become a lot clearer. Although I think it's fair to say that the disciples always struggled to come to terms with what he was about to tell them regarding the nature of their deliverance. They knew he was the deliverer. But how he would deliver them? That was going to mess with their heads. And the first thing that Jesus does in response to Peter's good, his great answer, is he tells him and the others, keep it under wraps. Peter was absolutely right, but he was not to tell anyone else. In fact, Jesus' response, depending on your translation, is a very firm, clear, even stern Instruction to silence. Which it might seem strange to us given that surely we're meant to get out there and not hold back from telling people who Jesus is. But in this context, at this time in history and in God's story, the true identity of Jesus was to be kept under the radar. Why? Well, mainly because whenever certain people heard the word and title Messiah, they understood that in terms of a political and military claim. They understood this meant someone was on their way to wreak havoc on their behalf and sort out the Romans in no uncertain terms. But Jesus was not that kind of Messiah. And so he says, listen, tell nobody. And what they were about to discover is that this Messiah was not going to talk about triumph and victory and sorting everybody and everything out, but he was going to talk about suffering and rejection and death. The path towards deliverance. You are the deliverer. The one we've been waiting for. But the path to deliverance is not normal. And here's what Jesus says. The son of man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. And he must be killed And on the third day, be raised to life. The disciples must have been speechless. But before there's any time to query what Jesus has just said or shared, he then goes on to explain that if anybody wants to become his followers, then they're going to have to embrace the same way of life. Or rather, way of death. 
Because immediately after talking about his own suffering and his own death, he calls upon his followers to participate in the same self-giving. If anyone, and this comes straight out, if anyone wants to come after me, if you want to be my follower, here's what's involved. You deny yourself, you pick up your cross, and you follow me. There's clearly a cost and a sacrifice involved in following Jesus. But before we consider that, there's also a powerful emphasis here, and I don't want us to miss this in this section of Luke, but there's a powerful emphasis here on belief and behavior, thinking and action. Peter and presumably the rest of the disciples believed in Jesus. They knew who he was. They just said it. You are the Christ of God. You're the anointed one. You're our deliverer. You are the Messiah. But now... They, along with every single one of us, are faced with the radical call of discipleship. Or the radical demands of discipleship that combine belief, not just what you believe, not just what you know, but they combine belief with behavior. Because you see, if you want to be my disciple, says Jesus, you're going to have to believe in me and then behave accordingly. What does that look like? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. And follow. It requires action. It requires a commitment. It requires a willingness to do. Back in Luke 6, if you were here a few weeks ago, Jesus asked this question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? And then he goes on to explain that if we simply hear what Jesus says... And don't put it into practice where then we're like the man who builds his house without a foundation. What we say and what we do have to be intimately connected. Belief and behavior are inextricably linked in the Christian faith. Who do the crowd say I am? Right. Who do you say I am? Right. Want to follow me? Here's what you do. But back to this radical call taking up the cross or a cross was the utmost in self-denial because people carrying crosses were on a one-way journey they weren't coming back their life as they knew it was over and exactly in the same way becoming a christian being a disciple of jesus christ was about laying down your self-orientated self-centered life and discovering a brand new way of life where jesus is at the center and jesus is the focus and incidentally and i don't want to head off on too much of a tangent but one interesting thought to bear in mind is that low people carrying crosses was a common sight at this time and in this environment and so therefore the imagery that jesus used here was graphic and it was compelling the disciples didn't know at this stage that jesus himself was going to one day carry a cross he had told them yes the son of man will be killed but he hadn't said anything about crucifixion We, the future gospel readers, know that Jesus carried his own cross and was strung up on it. But these disciples didn't have a full appreciation of what Jesus meant at this point in time. They were able to write about it with hindsight and therefore had a far better grasp of just how significant this call to discipleship was at this stage in their lives. 
So all Jesus was asking them to do, all Jesus is asking us to do, all, is just follow his example. But as we explore this a little closer and think about what it means for us, there's one word in verse 23 that sheds so much light on what we're talking about here. Just one word. This call, this demand of discipleship is also recorded in Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, but it's only Luke that inserts this word. And it's a word that quite honestly helps me enormously to come to terms with what this actually means. Does anyone know the word that Luke inserts that I've left off here that Matthew and Mark don't refer to? Daily. If anyone would come after me, They must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. This is about a day-by-day commitment and journey. We don't just lay our lives down once and then that's it. Like some kind of act of spiritual martyrdom. Following Jesus involves a daily dying and rising in Christ. The emphasis here is on sacrificial living. Ongoing sacrificial living. It's about a way of life, a way of life that we voluntarily take up. I take up my cross daily. Do you know sometimes we hear people talking about the crosses we all have to bear, which tends to refer to some specific problem or problems that people have to face and deal with, but that's not the crosses that we're being talked about here in Luke 9. This cross bearing is about an alternative way of life where living for God rather than living for self is the path that we have chosen to walk each and every day. Fred Craddock puts it like this in his commentary, a way of life that could be called cross-bearing would have to involve denial of self in the service of God. He goes on, following Jesus in the service of God is on a path along which there are crosses to bear, prices to be paid, pain and hurt to be accepted. And so as we consider this call to and demand of discipleship, we realize, as surely the first disciples did, that this is a tough call. This is not an easy path to walk. As Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is about surrender. It's about giving up all of us for all of him. It's about letting go. It's about living for God and others. And that's a daily challenge. Do we dare to be a disciple? Came across this slightly provocative comment during the week. How many times have we heard the expression, to come to Christ, all you have to do is just accept him as your Lord and Savior? Is that all we have to do? According to Jesus, it's not all you have to do. If you want to follow him, it's not just about accepting him, whatever that means. It's about denying yourself to the point where you bear your cross daily, dying to self in a violent manner in order to submit your very all. If anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, if, and so Jesus knew that many wouldn't or won't, 
that self-indulgence rather than self-denial will always be far more popular and attractive. But if you want to follow me, then you need to realize it's along a similar path to me. The Son of Man must suffer, face rejection, and die. But note the end of verse 22. He'll raise the life again. And so as Jesus goes on to define discipleship in terms that seem almost negative and off-putting or too difficult and too demanding,